Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Anna Rusbridger, I'm the editor of Prospect Magazine, and today I'm joined by sex worker and writer Tilly Lawless and journalist and editor Jessica Abrahams. Both Lawless and Abrahams have written features in the latest issue of Prospect, which point to a live debate about the criminalisation or liberalisation of the sex industry and how best to protect the women who work in it and what are the consequences of sex work for women as a whole. Tilly, who works in a brothel in suburban Australia, defends her often stigmatised clients and argues that criminalising them only makes her work less safe. Meanwhile, Jess Abrahams travels to Bristol to talk to feminist groups campaigning for a ban on strip clubs, as well as the dancers opposing it. So first of all, Tilly and Jess, thank you so much for joining us. Perhaps starting with Tilly, but I'll ask the same question of Jess. Can you explain what made you write in your respective pieces? Tilly first. Well, I mean, if I'm entirely honest, you guys approached me and asked if I wanted to write a piece. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I thought about it for a while and I thought if there'd been anything on my mind. And actually, I'd been seeing a lot of discourse on leftist Twitter, if you want to call it that, uh, which was kind of uh, condemning clients and uh, also condemning sex work. And saying that in, you know, a communist society, we wouldn't have sex work, that it was a, you know, decadent result of capitalism, that uh, men who see sex work as a rapist. And I I kept seeing this, these opinions come up from people who I would generally consider to have the same opinions as, you know, like people who are, for example, like pro-Palestine and like fairly socialist and stuff like that. And the opinions were really upsetting me, obviously, because I've been doing this work for almost 10 years now and I'm very close with a lot of my clients. And I think it was actually, I actually couldn't reconcile this kind of like complete dehumanising of clients that I was seeing from people in the left with my experience of clients in my life. And so that was where the idea for the piece came from. And Jess, your piece is about what's going on in Bristol. Why Bristol and why this moment for writing this piece? Yeah, so there's been this um, debate rumbling on in Bristol um, over strip clubs and whether they should be allowed to operate in the city. 
Um, and it's been going on for several years now, but it's sort of coming to a head now because um, the council undertook a public consultation towards the end of last year and a decision is finally expected within the next few weeks. Um, so I started to see this campaign from um, the Bristol Sex Workers Collective um, who were basically fighting for their workplaces, i.e. the strip clubs, um, to be allowed to remain open. And they were talking a lot about the kind of impact that this has had on them, you know, living the instability of living under the constant threat of having your livelihood taken away from you. Um, what's happening in Bristol is part of a bigger trend that's been playing out across the country for the past 10 years. But um, I suppose it's um, there's a lot of focus on Bristol because it's the, the biggest city so far that would ban strip clubs if it does indeed go ahead. Um, so that's how I kind of got interested in the debate. And um, uh, it's been quite a divisive issue in feminism um, generally. And so I, I kind of wanted to take a, a dive into that and understand what's happening and, um, and explore some of the ideas and the arguments behind it. We'll come back to Bristol um, in a moment, but, but Tilly, just just tell us how you came to sex work as a profession. Um, I grew up in a small country town, and I moved to Sydney to go to university. I got a scholarship to Sydney Uni when I was nineteen, and my dad was unemployed at the time. I didn't come for money, and so I needed. At the time, I very much it was very much like a financial reasons that I entered the sex industry. I was like, what job is like financially lucrative but allows me time to study? And I was like, sex work, drug dealing, sex work, drug dealing. And I went with sex work because I didn't think that I had the uh, quiet demeanor for drug dealing. Um, and you've you've you're, you've been doing as, as as I think you just said for for nearly ten years, but yeah, nine, nine years right yeah. now, yeah. Um, but but in your piece, you explain how about four years ago the, the nature of your work changed. Do you want do you want to just talk about that and and why why you changed the kind of work that you were doing? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't actually like a sudden change. I, I should say my work gradually began to change around four years ago. So when I first started in sex work, I was doing escorting and escorting. And I, I also, as I said, I was in kind of dire financial straits. So I was seeing extremely wealthy clients. I was also really young. You know, I just turned 20 and most of the clients I was seeing were, you know, like kind of probably like 45 to 55. So there was like a power dynamic between us in like many ways. And I was also, then I moved into brothel work and massage parlor work, and I was working night shifts uh, in the CBD, um, Central Business District. So once again, I was like mainly seeing wealthy clients who were like um, coming to the brothel or the massage parlor post like uh, work meetings with their colleagues and stuff like that. So there was still like very much a uh, power dynamic between us. And as I, I, I kind of had a real burnout with sex work maybe about like five years in and was like, I hate the industry, I need to leave, I can't do this anymore. And I shifted my work practice to try and uh, to try and get past that burnout, I guess, and see if it could be a sustainable job for me in the long run, you know. And I, what I did was I quit night shifts and I moved to brothel work, daytime brothel work in like more suburban areas. Cause basically when you're in suburban brothels, you're paid less, but there's also less competition between the girls and um, the clients tend to be less demanding. At least that's what I find um, because they're paying a little bit less so they don't expect as much from you. And in that shift, I found that I was, 
finally kind of working with clients that I felt that I was on more of an equal playing field with because a lot of these clients were men who, like like me, um, didn't come from a well-off background. You know, they were men who were also working class like me, uh, generally worked in trades, often migrant men. Like I, I'm obviously not a migrant and I'm a I'm a white woman, so I haven't I haven't, you know, experienced the um stigma and stuff like that that migrant people do. But they were men who I could just relate to in understanding a similar sort of struggle that I had felt. And I found there was a uh commiseration in the way we spoke about our jobs, you know, they often worked with their bodies in the same way I worked with my body. They understood me. They understood me having a sore back. They had a sore back from work. They understood having to be polite to rich people who were they who they were serving in customer service jobs, same as I've had to be polite to rich men in escorting. And I began to develop closer relationships with these clients than I'd ever had with my wealthy clients because it felt like with it was us together against the system that was fucking us both over. And sex work really began to change for me from that moment because I no longer felt this intense power difference between me and my clients and I now felt a sympathy between us and and I will say also working I also the the brothels I changed to also had better management um in that they were management who would back me if I did have a bad client so I let I felt and they also gave me more freedom with what hours I was working so I felt uh less exploited on on a number of levels and I also had come into a period where I was more financially stable so I could afford to say no to shifts and afford to say no to certain clients, which I hadn't been able to before. So there were a number of like circumstances in my own life that changed my attitude towards sex work. But yeah, definitely one of those, one of those things was feeling like me and my, I don't know, feeling like it wasn't as if my clients were, um, exploiting yeah. me in some yeah, way. That, that, that's yeah. so interesting because it, 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 in a way, Jess, it, argue, it mirrors some of the arguments in your piece about perceptions of of strip clubs and whether this is fundamentally disempowering for women because they're in spaces where traditional gender roles are being played out uh, and men as the primary customers wield the economic power. Um, I mean, that, that argument's clearly laid out in, in your piece and, and, and to some extent mirrors what um, Tilly's been saying. Yeah, and I think the, um, the, the thing with this debate is that um, it often gets very polarised, it becomes very black and white, but the sort of messy reality is that women uh, or people working in this industry generally have a wide array of experiences and it's really interesting to hear you talk about that Tilly and how your own personal experiences have varied and of, and of course um, you know depending on the particular circumstances of the people involved the experiences vary so it, it's uh, it's much it gets much messier than this there's a lot of grey there's a lot of nuance um, and uh, I think that's why it can be kind of difficult to I think that's sometimes why there's so much disagreement over this because sometimes that that kind of grey area is not acknowledged. 
just can you just sort of set out you set out very clearly in your piece the the difference between the two sides what you might call the liberal and the radical feminist approaches to uh, sex work yeah so um i mean i think we tend to think of feminism as sort of single ideology but there's obviously there's lots of different perspectives and theories within it and and at least within british feminism two of the kind of dominant strands have been liberal and radical approaches so so liberal approaches tend to focus on individual freedoms and choices and as long as women are doing whatever it is that they want to do and are free to do what they want to do, then that is empowerment, um, that is feminism. Whereas radical approaches tend to focus on structures of oppression and they want to say that um, the entire it, it's less about individual choices and more about the system in which we're living and the entire system is fundamentally unequal and patriarchal and so the goal of feminism um, should not just be to increase women's choices within the existing system, but actually to reform the entire system. Um, and and you see this this kind of difference of perspective playing out in lots of different areas. But sex work historically is one of the areas where um, there's been really a sort of clash of opinions um, going back several decades now, um, because. On the one hand, you have these liberal approaches. You know, if you if you apply it to strip clubs, you've got liberal approaches who say that um, women are free to do what they want with their bodies. If they want to strip off clothes, for, strip off their clothes for money, that's absolutely their prerogative. And in fact, if the authorities want to come in and tell them they're not allowed to do that, that is patriarchal, and that it fits into a sort of well-established pattern of women being told what they can and cannot do with their bodies. Um, on the other hand, you have radical approaches who say that. Um, allowing these spaces to operate, which kind of rely on the objectification of women, um, just perpetuates the system that we're living in and that closing them down would help towards the sort of long-term goal of changing the world that we're living in. Um, so that's where you kind of get these these um, differences of opinion within feminism about, about strip, club, club, strip clubs and about sex work more broadly as well. It's so interesting, sorry to jump in, but it's so interesting to hear that because for me, obviously, I am pro-decriminalizing sex work, but I and a lot of other people I know who are pro-decrim don't believe in and don't come from liberal feminism. Like, I don't believe in sex work because I think it can be empowering for women. You know, I think I think it, the discussion around empowerment is, like, completely irrelevant when it comes to sex worker rights. Like, I come to decriminalizing sex work very much from a structural angle, which I think that criminalizing sex work just endangers women's lives more. And like, I think of even in New South Wales, like in Australia, the state, I mean, we were the first place in the world to get decriminalization of sex work in the entire world. And the reason we got decriminalization of sex work was not to do with saying, um, you know, women should be able to do what they want with their body. And it wasn't to do with workers' rights either. We purely got decrim of sex work because there was a royal commission into police corruption and it was found in 1995 and it was found that police were uh, using brothels to, you know, like money launder and, um, you know, rape sex work as in, as in like, say, if you don't have sex with me, I'll arrest you um, and sell drugs and do all this kind of stuff. And basically the commission uh, declared that, you know, police are human, so we'll always be fallible. And the only way to remove the sex industry from the corruption and brutality of police was to decriminalize the industry and take it out of their control. So we we got it like decriminalization of sex work from a purely structural 
like um, approach, you know. So in, in Australia, the sex worker rights movement is not focused around liberal arguments. And I find these like liberal arguments that occur in the US and the UK around sex work to be honest, a, a bit distracting from the issue, you know. And I always have people, when, when I speak about sex worker rights, I have Americans and British people say to me, oh, well, it's fine for you to say that because you're empowered in your work and you're just, you know, reducing it to an empowerment. And I'm like, I never fucking talk about empowerment in my work. I, I don't feel empowered by my job. I don't think many people are empowered by their job. Um, so it is It is really interesting to me that this, this divide is set up as radical versus liberal feminism in the UK because I don't, I don't see that divide as that at all, you know? Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that because um, actually a lot of people I spoke to for this piece, when you sort of really got into it, um, they kind of started off from these very um, polarised viewpoints, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, and and actually they, I found quite a lot of common ground um, between them when you really start talking to them. Um, and, mm. and one of the areas where that happens is this really sort of practical question of, um, you know, maybe things would be different if we lived in a different world, but we don't live in that world. And you have to take a sort of very practical approach um, and, you know, the sort of sort of balancing the immediate term needs of um, women and um, what works for their lives right now um, and the sort of long term goals of, um, you know, maybe trying to create changes in the world that we're living in. And I think maybe that's um, a little bit what you're talking about as well. Mm -hmm. Tilly, um, I, I was interested in your piece where you look at models which really try to differentiate between the, the, the client uh, and, the, and the provider. Um, and you talk about the Nordic, Nordic Swedish model, which criminalizes the buying but not the selling of sex. But from you, you say from the point of view of the, the the sex worker, that's not not helpful. In fact, it's positively dangerous. Yeah. So there's, I would actually recommend an amazing um, TED talk by um, Juno Mack called "Why Decriminalization Is the Policy That Sex Workers Want." That goes into it way more in depth, and also the book "Revolting Prostitutes" um, speaks about. Uh, different policy models around the world and how the, the practical effects they have on sex workers' lives. But, I mean, a basic overview would be that when you criminalise the buying of sex but not the selling of sex, it further complicates sex workers' lives because clients, uh, they don't want to give up um, personal details about themselves when they book. So we obviously have screening methods when we see people um, if, you, if you're working privately. Um and by privately, it means like um, outside, a, outside of a brothel or an establishment, like working for yourself. Um, if it's illegal for clients to book, they are reluctant to give out personal information about themselves. So we can't actually check if they're a safe client to see. Um, under the Nordic model, it's also illegal to work with another sex worker because that sex worker can be charged with pimping. Um, it's also illegal for... Uh, you know, for you to book an apartment because a landlord can be charged with pimping just because they are living off the earnings of a prostitute. Uh, dependent children and partners can be charged with pimping. So basically it's like, okay, great. Like, uh, sure, the sex worker can sell sex, but they can't live off their earnings in any in any reasonable way. They basically are forced to be um, alienated and isolated because any interaction with people puts that person under the risk of uh, prosecution for pimping. Um, it makes it, it also 
sets up a oh, it's 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 a really yeah it's 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 a really awful model because also it's lauded by feminists as them saying like we aren't prosecuting the women who are doing this but it's like okay you're still making it Im- impossible and dangerous for them to do their jobs um and yeah I really I really do dislike this um binary that's created between sex worker and client because I think it's I think it's unrealistic like I think I think especially when you come for example to the gay guy community I have a lot of gay male friends who've been both client and worker at points in their life often when they're young they're selling sex you know when they've got like that whole desirability thing going on and then as they get older they end up being someone who pays for sex and I actually referenced in my piece but it was taken out because the word limit um a uh black gay guys work um uh Brontes Purnell who I really recommend on the subject because he covers quite well that kind of um moving between um client and sex worker and the way those lines aren't clearly defined in the queer community and yeah I mean and I also I made this reference in the piece but like I really do think it's it's it is comparable to the way in which we view dealers and people who buy drugs as if most dealers aren't also users of drugs themselves and as if a lot of users haven't also casually dealt in their own time and like um the it really it really morphs between those things like i i i think it oversimplifies stuff to say like you're one or the other you know jess i, th- I think you feel in the way the argument over strip clubs is going in the uk and there have been places where they they have been um banned but i, th- I think you feel there's, there's there's just simply not enough research to indicate whether actually that has beneficial results or not yeah so when i set out to write the piece um actually that was one of the the sort of big things that i wanted to do was to dig into the arguments because there are a lot of claims that are made on on both sides of this debate um you know around the policy that should be applied to strip clubs um and i really wanted to dig into those claims and try and find the evidence behind them um and it was really difficult um actually a lot of the evidence isn't really there um it's either out of date or it's poor quality or it's conflicting um and uh so yeah for example one of the things i I write about in the piece is um the idea that if you close strip clubs down the industry will be driven underground well that may be the case but we actually don't have any evidence for that and there are parts of the country where um strip clubs have been banned and there's sort of not been very much follow-up to understand what the impact on the women in that industry has been um so i do think um a lack of uh, evidence is kind of hindering um good policy making at the moment tilly do you have strong views about strip clubs one way or the other I mean, it's interesting because I understand that strip clubs come under the umbrella of sex work and in places where there aren't brothels and escorts, often they operate as, you know, often full service sex work occurs within them. Um, but for me, I can't, <laughs> I, stri- stripping to me serves a slightly different purpose. Like, so when you speak about like men who are coming into like a brothel or like um, seeing an escort, they tend to, they can come in a group, but often they come by themselves and they're having a private interaction with the person. And it, it, you know, often I think it's about loneliness and touch and like human connection and things like that. For me, stripping also falls under the banner of like performance, you know, like in my mind, I don't really separate burlesque to me. 
is just a, you know, gentrified and acceptable form of stripping. So I've never really understood the the uproar uproar around stripping because yeah I really just see it as a as as a form of performance and um a lot of my friends who strip like yeah there are ones who refer themselves as sex workers but a lot of them refer to themselves as dancers you know and I you know I think to be honest what's maybe occurring here is a is a uh, kind of rallying around stripping like uh, attacking stripping because it's a quite visible form of sex work and it's also a kind of sex work uh, it, it's around like sexual attraction and desire and like um tantalizing things and stuff like that that, that occurs in public and i think a lot of people are uncomfortable with also the um male um like uh like fraternizing that comes with strip clubs you know like i read in your article jess like the reference to like uh men um going there from work together and how the female colleagues like felt left out from that scenario and so i think there are some fears around stripping that are more to do with the men's behavior in those places and I, like, of course, like, think that strip clubs should stay open and support, like, strippers as sex workers and whatever, but it's a, it is, it is something that's less pertinent to me, you know? Like, I am, I am more concerned with full-service sex work, though I do see that um, perhaps, like, um, demonising stripping is, is a manifestation of the demonizing of the sex industry in general. But I think, yeah, I think there's something about the publicness of it. You know, it reminds me of like the shutting down of gay bath, the raids on gay bathhouses in the, um, in the eighties by cops and how the real concern going on there was yes, gay sex, but also something about the public nature of those places that really sent people into a panic. Jess, tell us a, a little bit about how the dancers in Bristol are organising around their rights. So this is something that's been happening um, across the country, actually, for the last few years. So I think a lot of the dancers in the industry, um, they do feel that um, they don't have proper labour rights. They're often reluctant to talk about it because... Um, they feel sort of any talk about the poor working conditions in the industry or any abuses they might have experienced can sometimes get used against them to sort of shut the industry down. Um, whereas from their point of view, they don't want to shut the industry down, they want reform. And so they've been organising over the past few years, they've been creating um, workers' unions, they've been engaged in litigation, various efforts, campaigns to try and um, get proper working rights, because at the moment, um, that they're, they're self-employed essentially and not only are they self-employed but they often um, ha they sort of have the worst of both worlds and that they, they have a lot of restrictions imposed on them by the clubs um, but they're self-employed they pay the clubs to work there rather than the other way around um, so as a lot of people working in the gig economy um, have been doing for the past few years they've been um, campaigning to try and get themselves recognised as workers which would come with um, certain labour rights. And, and Tilly, your, your, your own colleagues are, are, I get the feeling that they're, they're quite well organised. 
Um, in Australia, I mean, we have the same issue with falling in a kind of legal grey area between independent contractors and employees. Like, basically, technically, we're um, independent contractors, but then um, sort of management will demand things of us that should only be demanded of employees. So, as Jess was saying, we kind of get the worst of both, which is that we're um, treated like employees without the benefits of employees. Um, that obviously is a real issue. Australia does have a really um, well-organised sort of like sex worker rights community. Like we have the Scarlet Alliance, which is a national um, sex worker rights organisation, which is partially government funded and each state has its own um, sex worker rights org as well. Um, I will say like I haven't, we, I think there are a lot of other things that are on our mind at the moment um, rather than like sorting out that employee independent contractor divide, especially because within the community there is disagreement about which which one people would rather be. Like some people are like, yes, I want to be an employee and have sick leave, and others are like, oh, I like the complete freedom of being an, of being an independent contractor. It seems to me that there seems to be a lot more unison amongst um, strippers as to as to which they would prefer, and the comparison to the. Um, uh, gig economy is, is really apt in that. Uh, but within the broader sex worker community in Australia, I think there's more focus on gaining decrim in the states that don't yet have decrim. Uh, things like um, uh, bringing in like an anti-discrimination thing for sex workers um, so that we're treated like, uh, so, so we're not treated differently as sex workers as opposed to people in other jobs. Um, yeah, I think, I think there's more, there doesn't seem to be that much banding around sorting out that um, murky area between employee and independent contractor at the moment. Tilly, in, you, in your piece, there are really quite touching descriptions of, um, gen generalised descriptions of, of the sort of people who you see in in um, in the, the place where you now work. And you talk about the right to touch. Um, can you just explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I just I think that touch is a human need along with um, food and water and sleep. And I think that, I mean, the pandemic made a lot of us aware of that, that like physical touch is something that people really, really need. Um, I think that a lot of people gain incidental touch through their day to day or through a relationship or through friendship or whatever. And when they don't, I think there are. I think there are ways that people seek touch, you know. I think that people go out and get a massage and, yes, they might have a sore back, but often it's about feeling someone's hands on them. I think as I the comparison I drew in that piece, I think some people get their hair done. I think there, there are a lot of ways people experience touch, you know. And I think for some men, culturally and socially, they would not get a massage, they wouldn't get their hair done. Um, and seeing a sex worker is the way they can experience that touch. So I'm not arguing for, like, a right to touch in that like everyone is owed it for free i'm arguing for the fact that we should people shouldn't be denied access to touch and i think that i think that criminalizing sex work not only obviously like fucks over the lives of the workers which like i could speak about extensively but i'm i'm also like why are we denying people the access to touch who may not get it in any other way like i have i have you know for example a number of like um mentally disabled clients who have who have only seen sex workers through their life and i mean i don't like using disabled people like purely to argue for sex work because i think that 
um, um, I think that, you know, like non-disabled people have just as much of a um, right to experience that kind of intimacy. But, um, yeah. But, 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 I mean, you, you speak of uh, some of your, the people you see who are, who are lonely or people who've been recently divorced or. Oh, people, totally. People. And like people who are experiencing grief, you know, their wife has died. They want to see someone. They're not ready to date again. All those kind of things. I also just think it's, you know, there are people in life who are actually just ugly. And I use that word in terms of, yes, I know that word. It's it's about what society prescribes as beautiful. But the reality is we, li we do live in a society which decides certain things are beautiful and certain things aren't. And it's like, it, it's so easy for people who can, who are seen as desirable in other ways to access touch. It's like, why are we denying it to people who aren't seen as desirable? It just seems a... It seems a it seems a kind of cruel thing to me. Jess, when you hear Tilly talk, do you do you think that that viewpoint is being missed out by the as you described the rather polarized debate around sex work in the UK? Yeah, I think um, the argument about the right to touch. You mean? Well, just I mean, when you hear Tilly talking about. The reality of the sort of people that she sees. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of the debate around, particularly men who pay for sex, is is very binary, isn't it? And, and, and um, uh, doesn't really allow for the kind of portraits that we've just heard from Tilly. Yeah, I mean. Um... I, I mentioned some research in my piece about um why men choose to visit strip clubs and um there were some pretty unsavory motivations in there i think I, I mentioned one in the piece um about um some men talking about wanting to be in uh spaces where you know they didn't have to worry about sexual harassment and they could treat women however they wanted and so on but there were also a lot of men who talked about um the need for intimacy about um not being able to access this in other spaces. So I think that's a lot, kind of what Tilly's talking about as well. Um, I do think it's a really difficult one, though, and one that does sort of um, breach this sort of liberal radical divide. Um, because, um, I mean, I find, I find it very uncomfortable, for example, this argument sometimes that, um, you know, disabled people must have the right to to sex and therefore you know sex, sex workers can meet that need because I, I don't like the idea that um, there are some people um, who are so undesirable that this is you know the, the only the only possible way they could have access to sex or to intimacy is, is by paying for it um, but as Tilly says you know um, we do live in a world um, in, in a less than ideal world um, and these things are complicated. So yeah, I do think there's 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 probably a lot of nuance missing there. It's interesting because yeah, I read the bit in your piece about reasons why men visit strip clubs, and I wonder how different that would be um, from the reasons men visit like full service sex workers. Because as I was saying earlier, there's something about strip clubs which sets them apart. Which is like when you go to a strip club, often men go as a group. They're in a public area where other men are seeing them pick up and interact with women. So they're gaining some sort of like validation from the other men seeing them be like um, successful in their approach or whatever. And I do think there's a performance and ego that comes into strip clubs that 
isn't the same when a man comes into a brothel not wanting anyone to see him come in. Like, do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Although I would say, um, I, and and the, this is something that definitely differs um, in different countries, but in the UK, um, as I mentioned, uh, strippers generally don't make money from performing on a stage. Um, they make money from private dances given to men in Totally, but the men have to come into the strip club first yeah. as a group and see. Like when you go into a brothel, for example, you the men don't see each other. There's no communal area, so they can't actually get off on impressing each other on who they're getting. That's true. You know, and there's not there's not a there's not a men's competitiveness and camaraderie, and especially when a man's seeing a private worker. He's, there's no one around to see him see the private worker. And I, I make this, I make this note because I've also have worked in brothels that are night brothels where it's like a party vibe, where it's more like a strip club where men do fraternize in public spaces and you get such different interactions from the men who come in as a group and are able to see other men there and who will speak about you in a way that really objectifies you. Um, verse when you're in a brothel where the men come in one by one and interact with you as a solo person. So, like, I do, I, I think there is a, I think there is, like, you know, if you think of a, a strip club as, like, you know, a watering hole where all these guys are fucking flexing their muscles and showing off or whatever, there's that aspect to a strip club that is is very different to full-service sex work generally where a client is seeking out a private and, um you know, where, where no one else will see him see that worker. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And I, I suppose, Tilly, unless we're accused of over-romanticising um, the kind of work you do, I mean, you, the, 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 we, we have to acknowledge that there are bad encounters and, 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 and violent men. Oh, and, totally. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I would say, like, 80% of the encounters I have are good. Um, when I used to work night shifts at a, more of a party brothel and people were drunker and more coked up, I would say maybe 60% of my interactions were good. Like there are a lot more that, you know, men can be way more difficult to deal with when they're drunk and coked up and do have that like bravado around other men. Um, and from speaking to my friends who strip as well, they have to deal with those shit drunk egos in a way that I don't have to. Um but yeah, more, like most of most of my interactions are good interactions, but there are definitely awful interactions. But also, I've been treated like just as badly, if not worse, by men on the street who don't know I'm a sex worker, who are just treating me badly as a woman, than I have by men who are seeing me as a client. Like women get treated badly by men. Do you think that? Do you think that the debate around sex work is improving? I mean, it, it, you. I mean, the fact that you were prepared to write this piece and that you, you, you are sort of out there and you, um, you, you talk and broadcast on the, on the subject as well. In Australia, mm -hmm. 100%. Australia seems to be a bit of a bubble, though. I mean, actually, I mean, New Zealand has decrim too and Belgium actually just announced they're going to be bringing in decrim. Um, but in the US, no, I don't think it's really improving. And in the UK, I think same as like the arguments, you know, the anti-trans arguments, I think things are actually taking a few steps backwards. 
that's been such an interesting discussion. Thank you both of you for coming along and taking part in this conversation. If you enjoyed it, please buy a copy of the magazine where both these excellent pieces are. In addition to fascinating pieces on food scarcity uh, and this rather gloomy piece about the way the world is going post the, the war on Ukraine, but also a fascinating piece by David Miliband on China and Sam Friedman on how the Labour Party could discuss Brexit. And another interesting feature is we brought together three members of Extinction Rebellion to discuss the future of climate change with somebody who worked in the oil industry for 29 years. A very eclectic mix. Thank you, Tilly. Thank you, Jess. And thank you for listening. Goodbye, stay safe and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next week. Hello. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Just a note to say that the Prospect Lives podcast is moving to its own channel, starting from tomorrow's episode. If you'd still like to carry on listening to the Prospect Lives podcast and hear from actor and writer Sheila Hancock, asylum seeker Jason Thomas Vanillier, or mixed arable farmer Farmer Tom, subscribe to the new channel, the link for which is in the notes from this episode of the Prospect podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.